0: Let us pray, gracious God, as we come before your word, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher, and that you might bring us words of comfort, conviction, encouragement, or whatever it is that you will, because we know that uh, when your word is proclaimed, that your spirit speaks. May it do so for each one of us, and also for us corporately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, on this Sunday and next, we are breaking from our pattern of preaching through Matthew to celebrate a couple of feasts, which is a fairly Anglican thing to do. Next week is Pentecost, when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I decided that this Sunday we would celebrate the Feast of Ascension, a word for going up, of course. And the Feast of Ascension gets neglected because it actually happened on Thursday. And there aren't a lot of churches that meet on Thursday, and so it can get overlooked. And some churches actually uh, carry it forward to to the Sunday. But, of course, it's on Thursday because we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, which was read to us just a few minutes ago, uh, that there was a 40-day period between The resurrection of Jesus and the time when he ascended. And so, 40 days after Easter Sunday is a Thursday. And I became convinced more and more uh, as the week went by about the importance of the ascension of Christ. So, we are going to have more of a topical sermon today on the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension can get overlooked. For a number of reasons for one and I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the outline that you have on page one is that um, it's Jesus is going away. And uh, imagine somebody throwing a going away party for you and there was just far too much excitement about it, you might kind of feel as though they were a little too happy that you were going away. So maybe in a sense, the church has some anxiety about the idea of Jesus leaving. I'm sure the disciples had that same kind of anxiety in Acts chapter 1, which we just had read for us by Tim. Another thing is that maybe your experience of the ascension has been clouded by some kind of an experience, which wasn't particularly uplifting. More than once this week, I read of people's experience of going to an Easter passion play uh, that recounted the passion, including the resurrection, and Jesus was lifted up in some kind of a theatrical demonstration and often it was by some kind of a wire and uh, the figure playing Jesus was kind of lifted up into the curtains behind the stage and um, It just kind of seemed odd. You kind of wondered what he was doing up behind the curtain and where he was going and indeed since the Enlightenment and even before as we'll see a lot of scorn has been poured on the idea of Jesus being lifted up and taken up into the clouds, as though this is some kind of a primitive understanding that is a sort of quasi Neanderthal. Theologians are quick to respond that this is a picture; it's an image, and that the ascension of Jesus does not hang upon any kind of a primitive understanding of cosmology, and that actually Jesus's ascension is about his going to a different. Uh, sphere of existence, and clearly it's not up in the clouds. Uh, Clearly hell is not in some kind of a mantle in the earth, but these are metaphorical ways of describing what is perfectly reasonable. That is that there is a different mode of existence, and there is some place, we don't know exactly where or even in what sense it exists, where Jesus goes and where heaven is and also where hell is. I was uh, six years old on April the 12th, 1961. And that was when Yuri Gagarin, a Soviet cosmonaut, became the first man to enter space. He was in the Vostok 1 spacecraft, and he was in space for about an hour and 48 minutes. And Yuri Gagarin is reported to have said, when he came down from his spaceship, he announced, you know, there I was up there in space, outer space, and I looked out the window of my space suit and I didn't see God. Kind of raised a question in people's minds about, uh, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, is Jesus in outer space? But uh, Pastor William Criswell of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, had a comeback for it the following Sunday. He said you probably heard about Yuri Gagarin boasting about he, went he was up there in his spacesuit, and he said he didn't see God. Let me tell you something, dear friends. If Yuri Gagarin had stepped out of his spacesuit, he would have seen God. In other words you just kind of transfer into a different mode of existence and you can picture seeing god and so i think we need to take away and set aside any kind of a simplistic understanding that we have of the ascension there's a section on it in the outline and for those of you who are new i tend to be kind of professorial and provide um, notes on those issues and there's a whole issue about that on page uh four What about the primitive spatial representation of heaven being up in the clouds? It's nothing new, in fact. Origen, one of the church fathers, had an intellectual problem of his own about the bodily ascension of Jesus, and he was troubled by that. And so he said Jesus' ascension was more of a mental thing than it was a physical thing. Because in those days, the body was something that was corrupt, and the idea that Jesus would need to bring his body into heaven somehow seemed um, just, Not particularly dignified on the part of God. So, we want to take a few minutes this morning and look at the ascension of Jesus, an overlooked feast day. Many New Testament scholars argue that uh, the ascension is only important to Luke. And indeed, it is important to Luke, it's crucial to Luke. The ascension is the only event that Luke mentions twice. Once at the end of the Gospel of Luke and another time at the beginning of the book of Acts. And so it is a fitting conclusion to Luke. And I have it uh, in your footnote um, at the bottom of the translation that was read. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, says, And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them. And was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God and then as we saw from the reading of Acts chapter 1 Luke continues with the second part of his story of Jesus with reference to the Ascension He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, is that the book of Acts is now about what Jesus will continue to do and teach through the work of his Spirit. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after after, um, his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus ascends at the end of Luke and he ascends at the beginning of Acts. And Douglas Farrow, uh, a Canadian New Testament scholar and theologian, more of a theologian than a New Testament scholar, has done a lot of research on the ascension and argues that if the other gospel writers had a different motive, they probably would have included uh, the ascension. Take, for example, Matthew, which we are going through, and so I highlight it. Matthew, no doubt, was aware of the ascension. He could have mentioned the ascension, but that would have taken away the imagery that he wants to present of Moses being a figure of Jesus. And so Jesus, at the end of Matthew, is uh, the new Moses, and he's on a mountain, and he's kind of pointing to the future as a promised land, as it were. This mountain on Galilee is kind of like Mount Nebo, and Jesus, as Moses, is commissioning his followers to go in and take the land. In other words, each gospel writer has his own particular perspective and his own desire to do something unique. The ascension is mentioned, therefore, not only in Luke and Acts, it's implied in some of the other gospels, and it is uh, rife throughout the New Testament. If you look um, at on um, page five of your handout you'll see reference to it in many cases including in the case of john and further in acts and in ephesians chapter 1 and ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 to 10 in hebrews where we talk about the high priestly ministry of jesus and in first peter chapter 3 verses 18 on into verse 22 so the ascension of Jesus is something that is critical. One of the things that Pharaoh points out in terms of his understanding of the ascension, and I'm going to be uh, alluding to, to his work quite a bit, is the kind of the, um, the elevator motif that you find in the Bible. There's a lot of literally going up and down in the Bible. Uh, think, for example, of Moses going up onto Mount Sinai where he receives the law. And then when he comes down, he finds that the people have sinned. They've gotten tired of him being up there with God. Moses comes down. He realizes that the people have sinned. And uh, he therefore um, has to negotiate with God and try to renew the covenant. This happens over and over again. And it's most evident, perhaps, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus compares his own crucifixion. And he calls it an elevation. If I be lifted up onto the cross between heaven and earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then in the creed and elsewhere in in Ephesians uh, 2, we have uh, Jesus being elevated on the cross. And then we have him being buried. And then he descends to the dead. And then after he descends to the dead, he rises up to earth and then in the ascension he carries on up into heaven so there's a lot of spatial movement that has implications for how we think of the ascension the ascension is the backdrop to jesus's descending to the dead or the aftermath of jesus's descending to the dead which is also in our creed and i simply want to draw our attention for a moment to the descending uh, of Christ to the earth to the uh, to the uh, to what is sometimes called hell Jesus descended to the place of dead of the dead before he wrote, before he was raised again and so this means that Jesus was dead in the same way that other real people are and he in fact descended to the zone of the righteous dead in a place called sheol This is also called paradise and when Jesus said to the thief on the cross this very day you will be with me in paradise It's likely that he was referring not to heaven Because Jesus was the one who was the first to break into that zone and lead a host of people from the realm of Sheol And so when he spoke to the thief of the cross and he said uh, This day you will be with me in paradise Jesus was probably talking about this realm of the dead where the Old Testament saints were kept in safety and security in what's called the bosom of Abraham. And when Jesus ascended into the dead, he went there and he proclaimed victory over death to everyone who was in Hades. And so uh, Jesus in his ascension is not just kind of going up from the ground on earth, but he's actually kind of rebounding, having descended into the depths of hell. And so it is a comprehensive kind of a movement Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and Lord also of the underworld. So it's a picture of the sovereign sweep of Jesus's um, domain and his, uh, his authority and his governance. So the backdrop to the ascension is that it's best understood against the background of the Bible's ups and downs, including most approximately Christ's elevation on the cross and descent into sheol but what are some of the things then that we can learn from uh, the ascension of christ is it just kind of a, a spatial movement uh, where jesus goes after he is raised from the dead no it actually has a lot of practical implications it has a lot of theological implications and it even has implications for the celebration of the eucharist to which we will come a little bit later Let me highlight some things then practically, theologically, and eucharistically as they are on your outline. Well, practically speaking, though it was very hard to see Jesus go away, Jesus makes it perfectly clear in John's Gospel and elsewhere that his departure was good. And this is for one reason, because he was going to prepare a heavenly home for both the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. Jesus went and prepared, as he says in John 14, verses 2 and 3, a place for you where that we could go to be with Jesus and to fellowship with God that was new and was unique and was different. And I couldn't find any confirmation of this, but I I can only believe that it's true, is that because of the atoning work of Jesus and the purifying work of Jesus, that enabled us through the forgiveness of our sins and through the cleansing of our our bodies by his atoning work, it kind of gave us permission to enter into the realm of God in heaven. And so Jesus began by leading a parade of Old Testament saints from the realm of the dead. And then when Christians began to die, and when we die, we go to heaven to be in that place that he has prepared for us. Well, the Ascension of Christ, secondly, led to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Another practical uh, implication. Jesus made it clear, for reasons that were not explicitly told, was that it was necessary for him to depart in order to trigger the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so without the Ascension, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. Without the Ascension, we wouldn't have Pentecost. Not just the Resurrection, but without the Ascension, we wouldn't have um, Pentecost. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit is sort of um, um, the response to God's departure. You know, if, if someone goes away, it's, it's very sad. And if someone dies, for example, it's very sad. And sometimes the best that we can say when someone passes, is we say something like, well, at least you have memories of the person. We want to find some consoling dimension. But in the case of Jesus, there's a very concrete payback to his ascension, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, we have closer personal fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit than we have had Jesus not uh, ascended. If Jesus had not ascended, he would have been bodily, capable of only being one, in one particular place at one particular time as the bodily incarnate Son of God. But now that Jesus has ascended and the spirit has come, he can be in your heart and he can be in your relatives heart in wherever your relative is on the other side of the world or across the table from you right here this afternoon. So the Holy Spirit expands the scope of the ministry of Christ and it also intensifies God's ministry in us and to the world. I read more than one theologian this week who spoke of the fact that the presence of the Holy Spirit is such that God is able to work within us more personally and more intently perhaps than Jesus in his own bodily incarnation sphere or or mode could have been. Mode is not the right word, um, but I just just use that as I speak in passing. Thirdly, on the practical dimension, When Jesus ascended, he granted to us heavenly resources. The motif is that of gifts. I want to refer you just for a minute to to 2B6 on page 3. There's a wonderful quip here by Doug Farrell. And he's quoting Ephesians chapter 4. that says, when he ascended, that is Jesus, when Jesus ascended on high, He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It is the motif of Jesus being uh, a conquering king and he has uh, got his um, captive prisoners of war in tow with him and he's leading them in a triumphal procession and uh, he gives the spoils of uh, the defeated army to others. It's a bit of a violent image. It's a bit of a gruesome image, but Paul owns it and uh, owns his own sense of depravity in that metaphor. But the point is, is that when Jesus ascended on high, he bestowed gifts to people. And here's how Pharaoh elaborates. And he's naming what these gifts are. And he says on uh, on page three of the handout. Did I say page six? I'm sorry. It's page three of the handout, item number six. The churches have access to the righteous angels. They have access to the things of the Spirit. They have access to the heaven that orders earthly affairs. They have access to the world to come. They have access for the intellect through participation in the mind of Christ. Access for the soul through the exercise of the keys, that is the keys of the kingdom access for the body through receipt of the bread of immortality and the cup of salvation and the oil of anointing. He continues then to talk about these gifts, and he says, All this may be partial and provisional, transitional and hence sacramental, mysterious and not altogether utterable, but it is nonetheless real and effective. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Jesus tells Peter, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, if there remains until the coming of Christ a profound distinction between earth and heaven, a distinction more wonderful and more terrifying than it ever was, that distinction is already redundant now that Christ has entered heaven. To say heaven is not on earth is to speak of what was, not of what will be. So, heaven's blessings come down to us through the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access to those heavenly resources. One of those most wonderful heavenly resources, by the way, is the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's listed fourthly under the category of practical. It resulted, the ascension resulted in the ongoing high priestly ministry of Christ, the God man. That means practically speaking that when you and I are struggling, We might wish that Jesus of Nazareth were with us bodily. That would be nice. But now all of the people who follow God and who are his disciples throughout the world can have Jesus and know that Jesus, the God-man who has ascended, is interceding for us by bending the Father's ear, as it were. Bill is having a hard time right now, God. He's struggling with doubt. He's worried about his job. Please, dear father, intervene for Bill. Joan is struggling in work and is is depressed. Dear father, I want you please to intervene for her. So each of us individually has this Christ who is still a man and therefore identifies with us and knows us in our weaknesses, in, in our strengths, right now before the presence of God interceding for us. This is wonderfully explained in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and in 9, verse 12, and I uh, cite them on page 6. The writer to the Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. To appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What a wonderful truth the ascension of Jesus Christ is theologically then to move secondly and more quickly it helps us understand who we are and what the future holds paul has this image that to be a believer is to be in christ it is to be in some sense really but mystically unified with christ and so as christ has ascended into heaven so in a mystical reality we too have ascended with him and are with him there His destiny is our destiny. His fate is our fate. And we are, in a sense, together with him in the heavenly places. It's a foreshadowing of something that will become a reality in the future, either when we go to heaven or, more concretely, in the new heaven and the new earth in the age to come. So the ascension helps us understand not just who Jesus is, but who we are and what the future holds for us. We are unified and one with Christ, and that is a reality that we can meditate upon and capitalize upon in thinking about the ascension. For the sake of time, I simply want to refer you to pages 6 and 7, where I have a list of other benefits of the ascension for Christian belief, and I want to draw them to your attention and not itemize them. Brian Dunn has written a book on the Ascension, and in his concluding chapter, he highlight- highlights the importance of the Ascension for Christian belief. And he says it points to the centrality of Christ, and then I have a footnote that explains that. He says that the Ascension is um, a consequence of the resurrection that demanded that there be an Ascension. It's an affirmation of the fact, theologically speaking, that Jesus is king priest and prophet I want to read that one very quickly in footnote number six because it's profound it's at the bottom of page six as the king's son he sits at the father's right hand the seat of honor and dignity which is his sole prerogative and the rejected heir becomes the chief cornerstone that's the image of Christ as the ascended king Christ is the ascended priest as the great high priest he ever intercedes for his people in heaven unceasingly, presenting them before the Father's presence. And then as a prophet, through the mediation of the Holy Spirit, he's enabled to enter utterly and completely into the life of humankind, which was possible only in a limited measure during the incarnation. The man, Christ Jesus, now exalted to the throne of his Father, becomes in his representative role truly the man of glory, for all. Alan Richardson wrote, until the final victory, the cross in the heart of God still remains. Our high priest in the heavens is not untouched by our infirmities. All the sufferings of mankind are more costly to God than they are to us. Emphasizing again the high priestly ministry of Christ. Then to the top of page seven. The Ascension speaks of the role of the spirit and the church. It points to Jesus as the pioneer, the first one to enter into heaven and to bring with him the Old Testament saints and also us as New Testament believers. It highlights the fact that Christ is our contemporary. He's still a human being in his resurrected spiritual body. And he also is the subjugator of evil powers. He's the one who conquered the forces of evil. And thirdly, and eucharistically, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to read the excursus from Doug Farrell. And it comes on, on the second excursus, 2b2. Pharaoh, who is uh, now, as I understand it, um, an Anglican come Roman Catholic, talks about his understanding of the Eucharist, and there are parts where he is uh, indebted more to a Roman Catholic understanding of the Eucharist than to an Anglican one. That's neither here nor there for our purposes. I simply want to highlight the fact that the ascension of Christ has implications for the way that we think about the Lord's Supper, which we are about to celebrate in a few minutes. He says, and I say on page 8, Ascension theology turns at this point to the Eucharist for in celebrating the Eucharist the church professes to know how the divine presents itself in our time and how the question of faithfulness is posed. Eucharistically the church acknowledges that Jesus has heard and answered the upward call. That Jesus, like Moses, He has ascended into the impenetrable cloud, overhanging the mountain, thinking of the Moses motif. Continuing at the Moses motif, he writes, Down below, rumors of glory emanate from the elders, but the Master himself is nowhere to be seen. He's no longer with his people in the way that he used to be. He's gone to the Father, yet he is with them in the Spirit. He has not abandoned them or left them orphaned in their time of testing. They themselves have a place with him on the mountain, which they ascend at his invitation in their holy feasts before angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, words that we'll hear in a minute. They eat and drink together in the very presence of God. And you can substitute us for they. Eat and drink in his memory and in his honor and in anticipation of his return. They, that is, we, hear his word and receive anew their commission to be witnesses in the world. He continues, in other words, the church becomes with Jesus a community of ascension and oblation, sharing in his heavenly offering to the Father and manifesting the Spirit who recognizes created reality around him. It is in the Eucharist that the church's identity is properly established then and its relationship to the world is decided. Skipping a paragraph. In what sense and to what end is the Eucharist left behind by the ascending Jesus? It's a token of his having left us behind, as it were. It is the left behind as a lifetime to his own person and heavenly resources. The ascension when viewed from below is the incomprehensible absence of Christ. The divergence of his history from ours that leaves us gazing dumbfounded into the heavens creates that future tension that characterizes the present age and makes it a time of testing. The Eucharist, through the equally incomprehensible presence in the absence, provides that the present age should not be altogether without Christ. And so without hope or experience of the age to come. I'll leave it to you to read the rest of it. The gist is this, that the Eucharist is a poignant reminder that although Jesus is ascended into heaven, he continues to be with us in his spirit. And the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a poignant way in which Christ's presence is made known afresh to his people as we celebrate that supper that he instituted for us and it is to that to which we will come let me conclude by where i began yuri Giganov, or yuri Gogorin. yuri Gogorin died in 1968 in a plane crash and there was a lot of mystery about it uh why did his plane crash And the truth was finally known that it was a case of uh, incompetency on the part of another airplane pilot. Another jet fighter pilot uh, spilled uh, Gagarin's airplane in the backwash, and this other person in a fighter jet was way off course and nearly hit Gagarin. So Gagarin died uh, at an early age, uh, 1968, uh, in a plane crash. And what came to be known about Gagarin after he died, was that the Kremlin made up the story about what Gagarin said. Gagarin never said, I was up there in space and I didn't see God. It was invented by the Kremlin. It was a pure lie. And in fact, Gagarin was an Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox Christian who had a devout faith. And he never once questioned the existence of God based upon his having ascended into heaven. It was an invention of the Kremlin and was, in this case, a lie. My friends, the truth is this. Jesus has ascended on high, and we are all the better in so many ways for his ascension, and we thank God for the gift of his Spirit and the heavenly resources that have been made available to us through his ascension. To him be glory, now and forever. Amen.